vision, if you will, that you're walking down the road one evening here in London, and as you pass by one of the, the great many, too many, pubs that line our streets, two guys burst out of the door onto the footpath in a heated row. And in a fit of bravery, for some reason, you step between them. And as it turns out, one of them stole money from the other. So you try to start helping them work through it. You, you ask why one thinks that the other stole from him. And you ask the second guy if he actually stole the money. And it turns out he did, which of course makes it look like they will come to blows again. But you still manage to calm them back down. The thief actually apologizes, returns the money, and all things end relatively well. Now, in this situation, you helped two parties settle their dispute. You facilitated reconciliation. You were what we call a mediator. Now, a mediator, let's yeah, that's a big word, I guess. But let's let's think about it for a second. A mediator is just someone who works between an offending and an offended party to bring harmony and reconciliation back between them. And the point the point is the so crucial here for us today is that Jesus Christ acts as our mediator. We have offended God's holiness by breaking his law in thought word and deed we've alienated ourselves from our god by our sin and because god has to be true must be true to his own nature his character he must uphold righteousness and righteousness in the face of sin is angry and distributes retribution. If, then, we would not endure God's eternal wrath, we need someone who would mediate between us and God to resolve this issue of, of sin and its deserved penalty. Christians have long discussed Christ's role as our mediator, which does have many aspects, but, but Christians have also long pointed to Christ's office as our priest as the foremost aspect uh, of his work as our mediator. So if you, if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, I, I mentioned that our catechism says Christ does his work as the only redeemer of God's elect by executing the offices of a, of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And we discussed Christ's kingship already, and, and now we consider his priesthood. And so to give us an entry point into that, the Westminster Shorter Catechism 25 asks, how does Christ execute his office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So the main point today is that Christ acts as our priest in offering himself as the final sacrifice to forgive sins 
and interceding in heaven for us now. Christ acts as our priest in offering himself as the final sacrifice to forgive sins and interceding for us in heaven now. And we're going to think about this in three points, the sacrifice, the separation, and the supper. So, first, the sacrifice, and now we're going to turn to our text. So have your Bible in front of you, because here we see Scripture clearly outlined a priest's major function. So verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, So what's going on here is God appoints each high priest from among the people who needed to be reconciled to God to act on behalf of these people in their relation to God by offering gifts and sacrifices so that sins could be removed. So so Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, elsewhere described how successive high priests represented Israel in temple worship. And yet, verses 2 to 3 uh, point to the lingering problem with a long string of high priests throughout Israel's history. Right, so these high priests deal gently with people in their sins because these high priests themselves are afflicted with weaknesses that result from their own sin too. Now these high priests had to make sacrifices for their own sins before they could make a sacrifice for the people's. So they were to come before God as a a mediator to reconcile uh, Him, God, to His people by appealing to a sacrifice that forgives sin. But, But these priests need a mediator and a sacrifice themselves because of their own sin. Now maybe we can illustrate this problem. So, whether whether you're married or not, or young or or less young, imagine that you're married and and need uh, some marriage counseling. So you book an appointment with a counselor and you you go into this office with your spouse. But as things unfold, you discover that that your counselor has been divorced themselves like six times or more. And at this point, in your need for for counseling to restore a marriage, you're likely thinking, this person has no grounds to give people marital advice. If, If they can't keep their own relationships together at all. And and the point there is that Israel's high priests had the same kind of problem. Like the marital counselor who cannot maintain any sort of marital success themselves, so too those high priests who designate, who were designated to come before God to deal with people's sin were plagued with their own sins that, that stood between them and God. The, the whole reason, the whole reason that Israel had a, had a long line of high priests 
is that they kept dying. And death, we know, is a consequence, the consequence of sin. And, and none of these high priests were able to overcome sin and, and death. Which is exactly what God's people need from a high priest, though. It's exactly what our, we need our priest to do. And so that's, that's why verses 5 and 6 say that God appointed Christ to be the high priest over God's people. So, in Psalm 2-7, which, which we sang and is quoted here, God announced Christ to be His Son, both in the sense that He is eternally God with the Father, but also, as we saw, in as we considered Christ's kingship, in the sense that Christ's resurrection crowned Him as God's final King in fulfillment of His promises to David. Now, in addition to this announcement of Christ as God's royal son, the author also quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, that God also called Christ as high priest, not in the normal order of in Levi's family, since, since those priests failed and kept failing to deal with sin, but in the order of Melchizedek. The high priest linked to God's promise to Abraham. So we see how serious this becomes. This is like bringing in the Navy SEALs when the normal units won't do the trick. Because Jesus belongs to this higher order of an eternal priesthood rather than the failing Israelite priesthood. And because of that, he was able to perform the priestly duties in a way that actually overcame death. Let's read verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, excuse me, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, okay, so these verses, clear point, excuse me, sorry. These verses, clear point is that when Jesus prays, when he intercedes for God's people, he prays as the one who actually defeated death and was heard by, is heard by God. So as in verse eight, this is such a important, magnificent verse. I love this verse. We see that despite how he is God's eternal son, who as God's son doesn't owe any obedience or submission as such, he still suffered and offered obedience that achieved perfection. He didn't have to do this. He wasn't bound to obey in any sense. He was God's son. God doesn't have to obey. God is the one who issues commands. And yet Christ, the divine son, comes 
despite being God's son, obeys. And achieved perfection that results in eternal salvation for everyone who is under his priesthood. So Hebrews 7, verse 27, clarifies for us exactly what's at stake here. Hebrews is an amazing book. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to read this one verse, and I hope it, it brings together what's, what I'm talking about. So He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since, because... He did this once and for all when he offered up himself in contrast to daily sacrifices that these failing priests made. Christ offered himself once and did the job. Because he is God's true and natural son, he's without sin. And scripture portrays Jesus as the perfectly obedient priest during his earthly life. He committed no sin. And he perfectly kept God's law. He not only perfectly, and I think this is really crucial to note, he didn't just perfectly avoid sinning, although he did that. He didn't just perfectly avoid sinning. He also perfectly fulfilled all the tasks that the law requires of someone. And so we more importantly, see that a, that a major difference between Christ and the former high priests is that whereas they offered the blood of bulls and, and goats, which were never truly able to forgive sin in themselves, Christ offered himself as the effectual atonement for sin. Previous priests appealed to animals as sacrifices to cover sins, but those animals didn't and couldn't do the trick, which is why they had to be sacrificed every day. It wasn't working. In contrast to that, God's own Son, whose life is of infinite value, since He is true God, offered himself because sin deserves death someone has to die for our sin instead of animals jesus put forward his own life to pay for our sins the sacrifice is christ himself our priest who gave himself to death on the cross. A cursed death to endure God's wrath so that God's justice would be satisfied. That brings us to our second point, the separation. Right, so let's kind of review, make sure we're up to speed. The previous point looked at how priests offered sacrifices for sin to reconcile people to God. That was the job a priest did. And Christ, as the final priest forever, offered himself as that sacrifice to pay the death penalty for our sins. Now this point considers 
why we need such a high priest. We can get used to... Yeah, I think that this is a danger we face as we hear preaching regularly, as we look at Scripture on a regular basis. We get used to certain phrases like those about Christ as our high priest. But we should not overlook the immense meaning that that is loaded into these phrases, phrases that we use so often. We have to talk about it a lot because it's so important, not because it's menial. And so we need to examine more clearly why it was so ineffective that old covenant priests offered animals. And I think this is something to pause and think about it because human history is is filled with examples. Tribe after tribe, place after place, all around the world, filled with examples of people offering sacrifices to gods, which far from, hear me clearly, far from making the idea of appeasing a deity part of some general but invented and, and arbitrary human mindset, it confirms what Romans one thirty two says about how everyone knows sin deserves death. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those who are made in God's image know by nature what God's law requires and how, as as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, since Adam's fall, we, we have known that our sin warrants execution. And whether... By God's appointment in Israel as, as a device to, to teach about Christ's sacrificial work or by general revelation that God built into creation that we need to appease God's justice. Humans have approached this need in animal sacrifice. Now, m- modern people, for, for biblical or unbiblical reasons, easily accept that animal sacrifices cannot remove sin before God. And I hope that most people believe that because they realize that something more powerful is needed than an animal's life. An animal lacks, hear me, an animal lacks the right value to remove sin in that it lacks the ethical capacity to to sin, not to sin, or to die for sinners. And that means that your sin doesn't have an easy solution. Mere human efforts of pouring out the blood of bulls and goats never satisfy God's just wrath towards those made in His image and who have defiled His character by breaking His law. So there's a serious reason that God's Son 
had to die on the cross. The life offered to procure, to obtain salvation had to be actually valuable enough to purchase all those lives that it was intended to save. And the only life that valuable is God's own life. The Westminster Larger Catechism 38 explains it this way. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, favor, purchase a particular people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Only God can succeed in performing these works that that we need a priest to do because our sin is so great. So our priest had to be God, which is why our priest gave his own life to save us. The separation is that our sin made such a chasm between us and God that only God could overcome it. Brings us to our third point, the supper. So the first point looked at how Christ is the the final high priest who, who paid the effectual price for sin and the, and the second showed how it is the seriously heinous nature of our sin that required it to be God's own son to pay that price. And this point thinks about how Christ's priesthood is gloriously good news and how it is presented to us at this Lord's table. I hope that it's clear from what we've said already that if we rightly consider our sin, then at some point, at some point, it should strike us that it seems impossible that there could ever be a way to reunite sinners and God. Has that ever struck you? It seems like that should be impossible. Even every smallest sin is an infinitely treasonous assault against God's own glory. And God's glory is the standard of justice for the universe. Every transgression forges an immeasurable divide between us and our God. Which is why we need someone with an immeasurably valuable life to die for us. The glory of the gospel, though, is that God's Son did give His life for us, fully bearing the curse of God's just wrath against all sin for every one of God's people. He not only offered Himself to be that sacrifice to rescue us from hell, but 
He also stands even now to plead our case before God's throne. Jesus Christ, on the basis of of his perfect life and death, is the advocate for all who trust in him in the courtroom of heaven. Every time that we turn to God to ask for forgiveness, Christ stands before his Father's throne to point to own death as the fully effective reason why God should forgive us. Because Christ died for his people and endured our curse, God would then be unjust to inflict that upon us again. We must then but simply turn to Christ in faith to receive him as our Savior. But when we read Scripture, we also see that when a sacrifice was made, like that of our high priest, the priest prepared a a covenantal meal, even as Reverend Pearson discussed last week for us so well, wherein God would commune with his people and, and celebrate their reconciliation. And so the Lord's Supper is that covenantal meal. Now, this meal is not itself a sacrifice in that this bread and this wine do not transform into Christ's physical body and blood so that we might sacrifice him anew. It doesn't do that. It It is, however, it is a sacrificial meal in that it marks the completion of and God's acceptance of a sacrifice. Christ gave himself to the cross to redeem us from sin's curse. And now he gives himself to us as true spiritual food by, by hosting this meal for us so that we might commune with God and receive our Lord in these elements. Our great high priest has restored his people to full communion with God. So then let us rejoice in faith and celebrate our union with God as he meets us at this table. Let's pray. Father God, we do rejoice that our priest is Jesus Christ himself, your own son, whom you sent into this world to bear the curse of the law, to redeem those who are under it. And that if we merely trust in him, we receive him as our savior. He mediates for us. He restores our relationship with you. We pray that we would treasure that always and increasingly. And we pray as we come to this table that we would cherish anew the fact that Christ took on a body, a human body, a human nature, that he might earn our citizenship in heaven. And he spilled his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The body of Christ gives us life and the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We rejoice in that and we pray that you would help us to store that up in our hearts as well. Move in us now. 
Help us to live for you well because you would nourish us in grace. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.